Welcome to Away From The Keyboard. We give you a glimpse into the lives, interests, and tech behind today's technologists. Please join our hosts, Cecil Phillip and Richie Rump, as we get away from the keyboard. Welcome to Away From The Keyboard, where technologists tell their stories of how they started, how they grew, how they learned, and how they unwind. My name is Richie Rump, and with me, I have my co-host, Cecil Phillip. How are you doing today, Cecil? Doing pretty well, Richie. What's going on, man? Man, I uh, just got back from SQL Saturday uh, in Orlando, and man, every year, you know, I go to a lot of SQL Saturdays and uh, present, and I always have a good time at each and every one of them, but man, Orlando just nails it down every year. They just, they have some of the best planning, and uh, they actually have some of the best food, actually, but man, I had a great time this year. I just can't say enough about uh, those folks who uh, who planned the uh, SQL Saturday. They do an excellent job. You know, you said food, and all I can think is, you know, I probably need should make my way up there sometime. <laughs> yeah, man. Um, they have they had some really great uh, speakers and coming in from all over the country. And actually, I just I looked at the the schedule uh, last week, and I was like, wow, I, this person's coming down, and that person's coming down. Like, Oh my gosh! This is this is gonna be awesome. This is gonna be a pretty great day. That's very cool. And it turned out, yeah, it was an excellent event, man. Definitely need to check it out next year. Nice, nice, nice. So speaking of next year, what I've actually been doing is is really looking at 2016, and you know, trying to just make some plans in terms of you know, what am I gonna do? What are some of my goals I want to do career wise? I know one of the things I, I definitely want to do. I want to talk more. I want to go to some more conferences. Yeah, I want to start working on the that personal brand that. You know, we always talk about so much in the show, right? Like we've we've had guests like John Samez and others on talking about how important it is to brand yourself, how important it is to, you know, to be out there and, you know, just be able to produce content. So so next year is definitely going to be, I'm going to try and focus on that. Hopefully I'll start blogging some more and, you know, but more so, you know, putting some more work into the show and, and, and definitely speaking more and going out to some more engagements. So uh, So we'll see how that goes, right? That's awesome, man. I'm glad to hear you doing that, man. Yeah, it should be fun. It should be fun. I'm looking forward to it. You know, really looking forward to expanding the show and looking forward to, you know, just networking and meeting some more people and, you know, trying to spread the right message about technology and, and shed some positive light on um, on our community. That's awesome. And I know who we're talking to today. We got part two of a conversation with Brent Ozar. Didn't we talk to him last week? Oh, that's right. Oh, well, we, well, we could go to someone else, right? No, nah, but you know what? This conversation was so great that we just had to split it in two. Yeah, so tell us more about Brent. Brent Ozar loves to make SQL Server faster and more reliable. He created SP Blitz and also SP Ask Brent. And he loves sharing knowledge at brentozar.com. He holds a bunch of certifications and awards, including the Microsoft MVP Award. And you can find Brent on Twitter at Brento, that's B-R-E-N-T-O. And you can find him on the web at brentozar.com. Yeah, let's just jump right in the middle of this one. I think we're ready. This episode was recorded on September 5th, 2015. And now, part two of our conversation with Brent Ozar. And now, away from the keyboard's feature conversation. So, you're an MCM, and uh, I know that doesn't mean much anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so, why don't you tell us what an MCM uh, is, or at least what it was, oh. And what that process and what that journey was like. That was hilarious. So MCM was Microsoft Certified Master. Before that, it was called the Ranger Program inside Microsoft. Microsoft has their own consultants and their own support people. And they wanted a process and a test where they could say, 
when a person has achieved this designation, we know that we can send them on site when a problem looks really, really bad. And no matter how bad it is, they will solve it, period. So they had rangers for Exchange, they had rangers for SQL Server, for Active Directory, and so forth. And then they figured out, okay, well, this is a pretty good program. How do we go about getting the public? Because there's other people outside of Microsoft who could probably be rangers. And then, well, you can't really use the term ranger because the Army uh, likes their term there. So they called it certified masters. And you had to spend three weeks in Redmond. So I went out to Redmond for three weeks, spent time with all kinds of experts and people from the product team who were actually writing the software. Uh, and then you got a test during those three weeks. You got three written tests every Friday. You got one written test. Then uh, at the very end of it, you got one final lab test. And if you passed all of those, you were a certified master. And it had like a 20% pass rate. I mean, it wasn't pretty. Um, and it cost, of course, your flights, your hotels for three weeks. You're not billable during those three weeks. If you're a consultant or if you're an employee, you're just off for three weeks. And it costs $20,000. So as you can imagine, there weren't a lot of us who wanted to go do that. Um, <laughs> but I was like, yeah, I'm in. I want to see what it is. You know, I want to see if my skills are there. Uh, and I had no idea. Because, you know, a lot of us, we think, are, am I really good? We all suffer from the imposter syndrome thing. You know, how, yeah. I'm faking it. You know, somebody's going to find out. Um, so I get there and uh, every week we'd have the tests and I'm like, oh, my God, I passed again. You know, oh, are you kidding me? This is amazing. Um, and then the six hour lab, the last test, this six hour lab was the toughest SQL server and really any technical thing I've ever put up with in my life. They gave you a sheet of like three sheets of paper that are just typewritten brain dump from someone who has a company with a SQL server problem. You didn't get to talk to them. You just got their story. There were no test questions. You had to figure out what you had to do. So I look at it and I've got a slew of virtual machines there that I'm tasked with. And also you're given internet access. You can even search the web if you want. You could even bring your own scripts. And I'm like, okay, all right, this, this surely I've written a lot of scripts over my life. They're going to give me some leg up. But then you go in and you look at these typewritten instructions and you're like, oh my God, a lot of this is troubleshooting. And scripts really aren't going to help me here. For example, you had to set up database mirroring between a couple of servers, but there were strategic pitfalls in there designed so that it couldn't work by default. And you had to go troubleshoot all kinds of security stuff and whatnot. In all, I, I was guessing there were about 20 questions on the piece of paper that I had to go uh, troubleshoot and figure out. I walked out of there a little before the six-hour finish, and I thought I was going to cry. I was shaking. Uh, it was incredibly stressful. Uh, called my wife, Erica, and was like, oh, my God, you know, honey, I am i don't know how I did, but I'm, I've never been so scared in my life. And uh, as the other students started to walk out, uh, Robert Davis, SQL Soldier, was in my rotation as well. And we were talking to each other, and I was like, oh, my God, hearing their answers, there's no way I passed. I bombed for sure, you know, because I'm listening to these other students and their answers about, well, did you think about setting up replication this way, or did you look at the certificates in, on this server? I'm like, oh, man, I'm so screwed. And I found out I passed. You know, it took like a couple days for them to judge the labs, and I 
when I found out I passed, I just fell over. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> so there's only a couple hundred of us in the world who ever passed the, the SQL Certified Master uh, program, which is kind of why they discontinued it. I mean, you, if you're going to have a program that's that small, it's never going to be profitable, you know, even at 20 grand a pop. Uh, so there's a real feeling of war veterans between the people who went through this program because you went through this incredibly stressful three weeks and this incredibly stressful lab engagement that whenever I run into another certified master who went through that program, I'm like, okay, wow, you know what you were doing. You know, this was really tough. I respect you and your SQL server knowledge. I, you know, you're not faking it here. You know what you're talking about. Well, uh, yeah, I know you guys, when you guys are at the global uh, summit every year, you guys get together yeah. and you just take a picture. And, yeah. and so it really is kind of like band of brothers almost. Oh, totally. And it, it kills me. I missed the picture last year and it just kills me. I got to be in it, you know, this year trying to figure out how I can work the timing on it. But yeah, the, our genus, you know, there's uh, Robert Davis, Denzel Ribeiro. There's so many guys who I look at and I'm like, wow, you, you really know what you're doing. So that story you just told sounds really intensive. And one of the things I always worry about or I wonder about is how relevant are certifications today? And I wonder if you could probably answer that since there's somebody that actually hires people. Because I've seen yeah, a lot yeah. of people um, with tons of certifications right, <laughs> behind their name. And, yeah. you know, when they come in, like it's, it's a little bit of a different perspective versus what you see on the resume. So how, how relevant do you think some of those things are to you? This is where I'm, I'm always happy whenever Microsoft renews my MVP uh, sort of uh, award, whatever, because I say so many bad things, and this is about to be one of those bad things. Uh, I think Microsoft certifications are worthless garbage, uh, and it, it's awful to have to say that in front of a tech audience, but there are so many brain dumps out there that help you to pass these tests easily, and the tests aren't measuring what people really do. When I look at what, a, for example, a database administrator does, I need a database administrator to give me a checklist of what they do when the server is down. I need a DBA to give me a checklist of what they do when the server is slow. That's not even mentioned on any of these stupid certification exams. They ask you questions that are all a lot syntax related, for example. I don't want somebody who spends their time memorizing syntax that they can get out of books online or through Google or through Bing. I need somebody who's going to build out processes and be able to work with the business to accomplish goals. And it just irks the hell out of me when I see people go, oh, I'm working really hard to pass this certification because it feels like Microsoft is stealing money from them, is taking money from them saying, this certification is going to get you help you get a job. And it is not. Because, for example, most of my clients, you know, look desperately for database administrators, can't find them, and couldn't give a rip about their certifications because they know all kinds of people can pass the certs. It just doesn't have anything to do with your, you know, what you do. We don't look for certs amongst our employees either. You know, when we uh, went and hired Eric Darling, for example, I, I don't think he's ever had a Microsoft certification. He's one of the smartest people I know about SQL Server. He can run rings around me on all kinds of topics. And he's sure he could probably pass an exam, but who cares? I mean, I know from talking to the guy, it's the guy knows his stuff. I, I just don't see a value in certifications these days. I think that if a good certification design measures what you know, then it helps you feel better about your own capabilities. But the problem is, is that Microsoft exams are measuring things that I don't think are relevant to what real database administrators do. So if you're out there in the audience and you're taking a cert and you're frustrated because you, you fail, don't feel bad. A lot of it is that it's measuring things that aren't related to what you do. 
Yeah, like all that XML uh, syntax yes. that, uh, that that you use on a daily basis. Yes, <laughs> I'm like, oh my god, if who writes XML queries from heart? You're writing <laughs> qu- anything like the merge statement or anything like that, a pivot. If you write anything from heart and you're not saving the file so you can reuse it next time, you suck. You know, <laughs> that's one of those things that drives me crazy about interview questions. I'll see people say, oh, tell me about the contents of your favorite DMV or tell me uh, what the DMV sysdmio virtual file stats. Tell me exactly how to call it. If you're typing DMV contents by hand in the year 2015, you officially suck. Turn in your DBA card <laughs> because that's what file save is for. Save it so you can use it again next time. Yeah, I got so tired of writing the, the pivot syntax because I couldn't remember, so I wrote an online tool for it. Yes, I remember seeing that. I'm like, I, I totally could have used that because I think pivots <laughs> blows. Yeah, <laughs> totally blows. So I'm like, well, this this sucks. Let me just go ahead and write a tool that does it for me. Yeah, and that's, that's what I want. I want it from administrators. I want it from developers. I want people who automate things so that they don't have to remember stupid syntax. I want people to have a process that they handle when things go south, and that just isn't what certifications measure. So we can all uh, hopefully mark this moment as the time when I lost my Microsoft uh, MVP <laughs> award. <laughs> yes. So I- I've seen you at conferences. My apologies. I'm trying to get better. Yeah, I know. That's okay. Um, you will. Uh, one of these days, you will get better. Um, <laughs> but you have this like little mass that kind of follows you around at these conferences. It's my little right? red riding hood. Yes, my wife. <laughs> <laughs> so what's it, what's it like for you now looking back from where you started to where you are now, kind of being a little minor or major SQL celebrity? It's weird because I always want to, you know, when people will show up, my, my, the weirdest moments are when people are waiting in a line outside of the room where I'm going to go speak at. You're like, oh, they're, we're waiting to get a seat. And I'm like, wow, you know, that's that's weird because often it, I'll, I'll talk to them and I'll be like, oh, okay, what brings you in there? And they're like, oh, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about, but I want to go see you speak. And so that's that's really cool knowing that I can entertain people in some way that they go out and proactively look for me. Um, that's so freaking flattering. I mean, it's just crazy. Or like two years ago, I had the past summit. Uh, I had I was doing a big speech at the past summit, big session, and it seemed like a big room, and I was really happy with it. It was absolutely packed. I don't I don't like get a bigger ego by having a packed room, but it was like really nice. And halfway through the session, uh, somebody raises their hand and says, "We have a question from the overflow room." And I said, "What? What? What do you? What do you? What?" And they're like, "Yeah, there's another room full of people that are watching you speak." I'm like, "What?" What universe? How does this even happen? And they're like, yeah, there's a camera back over here and we're broadcasting video live. I'm like, okay, that that was just a surreal moment. I'm like uh, trying to digest that up on stage that there's so many people that they have to put a second room together. And it was hilarious for me because like the next year I had another session and it was called Developers Who Needs a DBA. But I was doing it at the past summit, which is all DBAs. I expected to have low turnout. Oh, my God. I maybe had one seat in five filled. I mean, it was it was a wide open, empty room because it was just the wrong conference for that uh, talk. So you can't really let it get to your head. You have to keep working on building the right abstracts for the right audience, making sure stuff resonates well. It's uh, it's weird. It's it's really, really weird. I still haven't come to come to terms with uh, a lot of how that works. Well, you had a bad time slot there, too. <laughs> Look at I, you. <laughs> Were you in the room? I, I don't even remember. I was I was right in the front, and I was telling people not to show up, right? Because you've heard it before from Ozar. I mean, seriously. Yeah. 
and I, and I don't, I don't feel like better or worse based on turnout. I don't feel better or worse usually based on a, attendee feedback. Like I, I, I'm hyper competitive and I always want to do well, but I'm really just going against my past. I want to get better every single time. I don't want to get comments that go, really, you should have rehearsed this material or speaker doesn't know what he's talking about. You know, I want to make sure that I, I do a good job in the attendees eyes because they're basically paying with their time to sit there. So yeah, when I have this little mass of folks show up and go, hey, we're here to see you speak, that's really humbling and flattering to go, all right, I must be doing something right if these people want to hang out with me for another hour. Does it add to the pressure or the anxiety a little bit knowing that, hey, these people are expecting me to be at my best and yes. maybe you had a rough night last night or, or whatnot and you're like, oh, maybe this, maybe I'm going to disappoint these folks? Yes. For Oh my God, at every point in the step, in every point in the process, like, okay, I have to build a good abstract. Uh, I have to build a good session. My demos have to be perfect. I wrote a blog post a while ago saying why I don't basically why I don't go and party the night before I'm going to go speak. And I caught a lot of flack from it privately. I had a lot of speakers say, "Look, dude, you know I know you had drinks with me, you know the night before you were going to go speak." I'm like, "Well, yeah, I wasn't out till like midnight, you know, getting bombed or you know faced on the thing." So I have to be careful about what I do the night before. I have to take care of myself, drink lots of water. I have to have tea, you know, the, to take care of my throat when I'm going up and doing the session. I like having a couple of espressos like half an hour before I go on to make sure that I'm, you know, 100% alert and functional. There's all these things that I go, I have to get this absolutely perfect because if I bomb, I'm comfortable with bombing, but I do not want to let these people down. Like I want to give them a seriously good time. Um, there's been a session that I've had in the back of my mind that I've been working on for the last five years called Look Ma No Hands where I go through a series of demos with things that people just don't expect to see out of SQL Server, and I can't release it until it just has everybody's jaw drop you know, as I go through these basic parts of it. It's just so much work to get it absolutely flawlessly right, and I can't let it see the light of day until you know it's absolutely perfect. So the pressure on there, it's, it's very internal, and it totally is real. Now, now, I just have a lot of pressure for my first past summit uh, presentation. Thanks, thanks so much. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. No worries. Um, I'm going to cut this one short. I got to work on my demos again. I got lucky. My, uh, my the first time I ever went and spoke, I was an alternate. I applied. I don't know, two or three years in a row, and gotten turned down. And because I, I didn't really have any kind of community presence, and I didn't know how to write an abstract. And then one year, I just got an email. I think it was from Kevin Klein, who said, uh, "We had to cancel tomorrow. Are you ready to? Could you speak?" And I'm like, "Sure." Because at that point, who cares if you suck? You're there. You know, that's so better than nothing. Um, so that, I think, was the first way to break in. I can't imagine how awful it would be having all this pressure leading up to your first summit. That must be terrible. Oh, my God. Good luck, man. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. Thank you so much, Ozar. Appreciate that. Oh, sorry. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I, I see a lot of technical presentations, you know, throughout the year. And there's tons of of really not so good technical presenters. And I'm not saying they all work for Microsoft, but it kind of feels that way. <laughs> but you know, there are some that really you know, jump out at you. Um, Scott Hanselman just happens to be one of them. And, and obviously your name comes up a lot. And I think that you're one of the, the best speakers that are actually out there. How, how did you transform yourself to, oh, I'm just going to get up there, I'm an alternate, and uh, we're going to wing it to uh -huh. you know, become hey, one of the, the best technical presenters that are actually um, out there day in, day out. Yeah, what, so I should be a good uh, person and say to, to the folks listening that 
most of the Microsoft presenters that you see out there, they have a day job, which is developing software. So I'm so thankful when Microsoft people come and speak because they're, they're giving their time and, and I'm okay with them bombing as presenters. Like they can be truly awful presenters. As long as the material in the slides is good, I'm a totally happy camper. And so just generally when you're giving feedback, you know, keep that in mind to those poor Microsoft folks. A lot of them don't even want to be presenters. Like, <laughs> yes, I, that, that's pretty apparent. God, you can tell. Um, but uh, so the, the journey for me involved two things I think really stick out in my mind. One was every single time I get feedback, like any SQL Saturday, user group presentation, conference, I go through all of the feedback and I'm like, all right, what can I do to move this needle forward? What was every single thing that someone said bad and how can I make that better? And it, I don't start from the place of, oh, this attendee is an idiot or he didn't get what I was saying. I have to make sure that the right people are in the seats and the wrong people are not in the seat. Because if somebody comes in and says, oh, this, this presentation should have been a deeper level, you know, it's, it's clearly it was sold as a, you know, 400 level talk, but it's really just 100 level. That's my fault as a presenter. I have to figure out what the right attendee should be and how do I write an abstract in a way that keeps the right people in the seats and keeps the wrong people out? And how do I look at their feedback and make sure that it delivers really well? There's some things you can't fix if the projector is broke, if the AC stops working, but generally everything else is on you. Everything is on you as a speaker. Owning that is all on you. And then the other thing was going through teacher instruction. Not, I didn't go to school or anything like that to become a teacher, but I'll go through and read books for teachers about how do you uh, teach elementary students? How do you teach kindergarten students? How do you teach adults? Um, how do you bring different kinds of experiences to your sessions? Like I, I want to try and Alton Brown is a great example in terms of how do you find inspiration in the way people teach? What techniques can I use from these other industries, whether it's Alton Brown, whether it's a kindergarten teacher, professional storytellers are another great example. Turns out there's user groups basically for professional storytellers. These people just talk about how you set up the mood from the first sentence, how you get audiences involved in repeating specific lines, how you gently ease them back out at the end of the story. And I can't do all of that stuff, you know, but anytime that I can draw inspiration from them, stage movement is another great example. I got into that like two years ago. The places that you stand on stage can make a difference in how you tell the story. The, sure. the developers who needs a DBA uh, session, I made sure to stand on the left-hand side when I was talking as the database administrator, then stand from the right-hand side when I was talking from the other job roles so it really helps audiences draw in and tell a you know, really understand where you're at and get your story. It sounds like hard work, but I think, you know, there's that that old saying, if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. It's kind of BS because you, you're working mm -hmm. really hard at it. But if you love whatever this is that you're doing, you're going to work much harder at it at your free time. The big thing that I happen to love is just how do I see that aha moment in somebody's eyes? How can I convince them or, or, or take them on a journey with me to a specific piece of knowledge or an end result? I know one of the things that I do as a speaker sometimes, right before I go and present, I, I usually need some space. Uh -huh. So I'll sit down in a corner, I'll put the headphones on, you know, I kind of put myself in a, I kind of clear my head a little bit and kind of just really try and focus. Uh-huh. One of the things it kind of does is it kind of helps me to calm down a little bit because I'm always nervous. Yeah, uh, yeah. Every time I, just before I go and present. Yeah. And 
it also kind of just, again, it just puts me into that zone. So I'm asking now, do you have any types of, of like pregame rituals that you might do, for instance? It is so not fair. This sounds awful. It sounds like a uh, greedy. It's so not fair that we as speakers don't have a green room right behind where we're speaking. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. I would love to be able to have a separate space where I can go get into the right frame of mind. I can go listen to music, you know, whatever it is that I need to do. But when you're at conferences or user groups, you're stuck up on the stage. You know, you, you have to get your laptop up there. You have to get the cables ready. And then you are in front of dozens or hundreds of people for like 20 minutes. And it's such an awkward, personal, vulnerable spot. So what I do is I'll put on music that's loud enough that I can hear it, you know, going through the laptop speakers. Maybe the first row can hear it. That's not my objective. I just want to hear it personally so that I can kind of get psyched up and in the right uh, frame of mind. And then I'll have a separate computer where I go and put up Twitter. I'll go and joke back and forth with attendees. But I I just wish that I had the green room type thing because it is really hard. The other thing I'll do is on that separate computer where I'm looking at Twitter, I'll pull up PowerPoint or my demo code and I'll walk through it just side by side as I'm happening to glance. I don't want to seem like I'm buried in the computer because that seems to turn off attendees. Um, But I want to just be able to glance through it without changing what's on my main laptop screen because I want the audience to still see uh, whatever's going on, you know, the conference slide. Yeah, I've, I've joked with you for years that you need like some WWE intro music, yes. you know, yes. and some and some smoke and some lasers. Yes. Yes. See, that's, see, that's what we really need is technical. We need, you know, let's get the, the crowd pumped just a little bit, you know? Yes. Yeah. Keynote speakers have it so much easier in that regard because you do get the green room and you get the lights and you get the, you know, the pumped up music. Uh, but for the rest of us, yeah, it's, it's nerve wracking. And uh, for those, if you ever do webcast, that's even worse because on webcasts at least you get the opportunity to go listen to music or whatever but then you're presenting in front of a webcast or webcam and you don't see any of the audience members oh if you think presenting in front of 100 people is hard try presenting in front of nobody it is way harder that is (laughs) you don't get the laughs you don't know the vibe of the audience you don't even know if they're if they're understanding what you're saying you know so people say oh you know i wouldn't ever want to stand up in front of 100 people and speak or a thousand people and speak that's great because at least you can adapt and go all right people here aren't getting it let me go slower rephrase a certain point or take longer so I remember you uh, presenting uh, remotely to the South Florida SQL Server group, and I just so happened not to be there that night, and I was plugged into the remote. And I think I was razzing you pretty hard over Twitter or something <laughs> yeah. like that. And I asked you off offline, "Is like, is that okay when I'm sitting here just, you know, just giving it to you off offside?" And, and you were absolutely like. Yeah, man, I get anything to get because yeah. when you talk in front of nobody, you have no clue oh. how anyone is, is reacting. So, God. yeah, keep it up. Yeah, it's and I think it also probably has to do with the, the level of experience of the presenter because the longer you've been doing it, you know, like now the projector can catch fire. It doesn't bother me. It, uh, Jeremiah and I did a pre-con at SQL Saturday in Boston, and one of the projectors would go on like a light switch rave every six seconds. It would just flick <laughs> up, flash on and off. And I'm like, well, you know, folks, this is going to be awesome. You know, so and I'm trying to present at the same time. I'm trying to fix the projector, you know, and who knows how it's going to work. So you, you get to a certain point, and you're like, it's, it's hard, to, hard to fluster me here at this. Even with, especially if you put the work in and you screenshot all your demos, if, cause your demos are gonna fail. 
you know, dear audience, if you're ever thinking about being a presenter, your demos will crash and explode. You have to gather screenshots of all of them ahead of time so that you can say, all right, folks, I'm not going to try and troubleshoot this VM. It is a burning hunk of metal. Instead, what we're going to do is look at screenshots of what normally happens when I do this and I'm not in front of, you know, hundreds of people. Challenge accepted, Ozar. <laughs> Challenge accepted. Yes. The, word, the toughest distraction I ever had was Andrea Allred, who's, uh, I want to say, Royal Sequel on uh, Twitter. Yes. Uh, comes up right before one of my past sessions, and she's in a full-blown princess dress. I'd never met her before, and I was utterly... Sp I'm like, what on earth is going on here? What is this? And uh, she's like, hi, you know, my name is Andrea. I'm like, what? hold on. Let's back up a step. Why are you wearing a princess dress? You know, so that was... that. That's like the only thing that gets me off guard now these days. All right, I think we're going to need to get Argenis Fernandez in a princess dress right before you present. Yeah. And... Will completely throw you off. Yes. All right. I know we're uh, we're running short on time here, but I, I do want to ask um, maybe Sesswa has a final question too. So, I've got one final one, and I'd love to hear your story about getting married in Vegas. Oh yeah. You did what? Yes, I got married in Vegas. Erica and I have been together since 2000, um, and I. I don't know. So I'm going to get in trouble, I'm sure, for saying a lot of these things, but here we go. So I, somehow I managed to find the only woman from Central America who does not believe in marriage, does not go to church, does not want children, is fiercely independent. Um, and so for years, we were together for like a decade, uh, and I really wanted to marry her. She's the one for me. I love her so much. Uh, heaven forbid she ever gets hit by a bus or whatever. I'm done. I'm going to be single for the rest of my life. She's absolutely the one for me. And she didn't get want, she didn't want to get married. And so she had a rule. We could get married if we were in Las Vegas, but we could not go to Las Vegas to get married. So one day we go out to intersections There's a conference that's out there and I'm like, oh, this is perfect. You know, it's going to be wonderful. We'll be able to get married finally. Uh, and I don't say anything, but I'm getting all excited and I'd set up a little chapel and all this. And one afternoon while we're, we're uh, out of the conference, she's talking to the housekeeper in the hotel and the housekeeper, it just so happens, had just gotten divorced. And Erica's talking to her like she's, she goes, don't worry about it. It doesn't matter. Men suck. You don't need marriage anyway. Marriage is for suckers. And my face is just getting worse and worse. I'm like, oh, God, okay, maybe she'd, all right, that's cool. I understand. So we're driving back home. We did a road trip out to Vegas to do this. And we're driving back home. And she goes, you know, I, I'm kind of surprised you didn't uh, get married to me in Vegas. I'm like, what? You were just telling me, you told the housekeeper marriage is for suckers and all these things. She's like, well, yeah, but I was just trying to make the housekeeper feel better. I'm like, doggone <laughs> it. That was my one chance, you know, that I'd roped you into going to Vegas. So like a year or two later, we end up out in Las Vegas again. This was last year and uh, for, for another conference and slash vacation trip. And uh, she goes, uh, I said, oh, come on, let's go. Uh, let's go to this. There's this drive through chapel in Vegas that everybody gets married at. I said, come on, let's go do it. And she goes, you're serious? I said, yeah, absolutely. And uh, she goes, well, hold on. You know, let's, let's go look at rings again. And she'd had her eye on rings, found one ring that she absolutely adored. And there was only one of them left. So I'm like, let's, let's, it must be fate. Let's do it. Come on, let's go. So we got married in a drive through chapel in a Mustang convertible uh, with our dog along. It was perfect little road trip thing. And then emailed everybody back at home to say, hey, we're married. That sounds like that should be a the movie somewhere. That's amazing. <laughs> like my favorite part of that is the Mustang convertible. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I think it was red too, if I remember right. Of course. Yeah, it was just awesome. I love those things. It was very nice. 
So we'd like to thank Brett again for being a guest on the show. It's definitely a pleasure speaking to him. Remember to tell your friends about the show and leave a comment on the website at awayfromthekeyboard.com or on Twitter at AFTK Podcast. You can also follow me at Cecil Phillip and Richie at Jarris. That's J-O-R-R-I-S-S. One of these days I'm going to stop spelling that. No, no, I, I enjoy you spelling my name. I uh, want to make sure everyone gets it right because there's never two R's, two S's, two I's, two J's, whatever, you know. It's kind of a weird spelling, but you know what? You have to make it hard, right? I have a lot of Google juice on that. <laughs> <laughs> you spell it right and you'll find me. Sure. Okay. You can subscribe to the show via the website or on iTunes. And if you really want to know what makes us tick, sign up to our newsletter where you get extra episodes and behind the scene access to we from the keyboard. Next on the way from the keyboard, we'll have business intelligence expert, Mr. Devin Knight. Really be work in IT and how to be a consultant before uh, my brother would bring me on at Pragmatic Works. And at that point, it was starting to grow as a company and he could he could handle bringing on uh, kind of a mid-person at that point. So he, he did not hire me right away. You know, no, you know that's okay, I guess. But uh, you know, I'm, I'm there now. I, lo- I like I like what I'm doing, and and uh, you know, nepotism lives on. Yeah, for real this time. Yeah, for real, for real, not for f- <laughs> not for fake. For we will get it edited in time. We we promise. <laughs> Bye. Later. want to thank you for listening to Away From The Keyboard. As a reminder, we will have new episodes each and every week. You can interact with us on Twitter at AFTK Podcast or at awayfromthekeyboard.com. Hasta luego! One idea, WWE intros. I'm just saying. <laughs> yes, yes. I'm just saying. And green rooms. Yes. It, it, it could work. I think yes. And green rooms. I'm all for the green rooms. Yes. Uh, I think the problem with the speaker rooms are, you know, that it's it's not for speakers to prep. It's for speakers to interact with one another. Yeah. And it's not near your session. I mean, it has to be right behind your session so yeah. that you can get all the videos and everything, your, your video connection set up, and then go back into this room to get into your happy place before you come out on stage. I think it would totally change the dynamic of how sessions work. Yeah. Before the WWE. You know. Yes, yes. Yes. Those are keynotes only, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so Brett, the last question I, I gotta ask you. Okay, so one question I wanted to ask you. So now when it's all said and done and you know the work's done, the presentations are done, the sessions are done, like what do you what do you do to check out? What do you do to just sit back and relax and like let's you know, give me five minutes, let me, you know, be myself and you know, not do work for a little while. 
two things. One is I walk my dog every morning for an hour. So we'll leave the house, go off and walk uh, for a full hour and just uh, veg out. And I oddly, I listen to podcasts when I'm doing that. And you guys, of course, is one of them. And then uh, and it was so funny hearing Gareth the other week. It was so nice to hear Gareth's voice again. He and I used to work together and we I just love the guy to death. Um, but then the other thing I'll do in the after work is reality TV. I'm horribly addicted to Project Runway, Survivor, MasterChef, <laughs> like every kind of bubblegum television. I don't do Big Brother. Erica watches Big Brother. Um, but I'm, I'm really into those kinds of reality TV. And Anthony Bourdain is a genius at film these days. Parts Unknown is one of my favorite shows that I've ever seen. He does a really good job of taking people to a place. It's not about the food anymore. It's more about the politics and the local nature of it. It's really amazing to just watch. And I like those kinds of things where I totally unplug and don't have to do anything. Yeah, I know for me, one of the shows I like to watch is probably, I watch Shark Tank. Oh, yeah. um, we definitely watch MasterChef. We have actually been watching MasterChef Junior when that season was on. Oh, that was great. actually pretty interesting. Yeah. And if you like those, all all of the hosts, uh, Gordon, uh, Graham, uh, all the new ones, have uh, their own Instagram feeds. So if you're on Instagram at all, it, they have beautiful food photos from behind the scenes and from them jetting off to different places to go and judge the competitions. And most of the contestants these days have Instagram accounts as well. It's so much fun to watch and just get a view behind at their lives. So I have this question that I've always wondered about these shows. So they do, you know, they do the food challenges and the person comes up, they present the dish, the judges, each one of them comes and they sample some of the food. So they take maybe like two bites out of this whole plate of food, right? And now they're sampling maybe like 20 dishes. Uh Where does the rest of that food go? Uh, Well, what I heard from uh, Cutthroat Kitchen was one of the ones where they've done behind-the-scenes type blogs about is it the camera crew gets to eat them? You know, the camera crew goes off and eats the rest of it. Because I was going to say, that's a lot of food to throw away every show, man. But, you know, a lot of the food that you see on there, especially if you ever watch Chopped, I'm like, I wouldn't want to eat that stuff. That's disgusting. No, you know, yeah, it is. Cool. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's awful. We had, uh, I'm lucky to live in Chicago, and one of the Top Chef's uh, winners, Stephanie Izard, has a big restaurant here. And she had one of her chefs go on to Chopped. Well, before he went, he had these weekly dinners at the restaurant where you could go in, and it was just for like six people. You could go in, and he would make you food. There were two chefs that would go up against each other in a battle with baskets that they'd never seen before. So it was just like being on Chopped and being one of the judges. The food was disgusting. It was awful. It was so (laughs) gross. You know, I got done at the end of it, and I'm like, and these are really good chefs. These are people that I know and I've seen work. But when you tell them to take monkfish and blueberry granola bars, you're not going <laughs> to like what comes out of that. It's going to be gross. So it's, it was a lot of fun to participate in, but it gave me a whole new level of respect for judges, especially in Cutthroat Kitchen and whatnot. And you have to watch their poker face as to how they're talking about, oh, you got the doneness right on the fish. That means it tastes like garbage, but it's, you know, the texture <laughs> is right. Yeah. Could use a little salt. means like it's a cardboard box. <laughs> All right. So you need to take me to that restaurant next time I'm in Chicago. <laughs> oh, it's wonderful. I love this place. It's fantastic. I, I think we drove by it um, when I was up there earlier this year. Oh, it's a Girl and the Goat or a Little Goat Diner. And she has a brand yeah. new one coming out. Uh, Duck Duck Goat opens in December. Duck Duck Goat. Nice. Yes. Really Duck good. Duck Goat. <laughs> really good stuff. So many good restaurants here in town. It's incredible. Yeah. That's... Uh, that. that I, we uh, I was up there uh, this week and oh. um, yeah, 
Yeah, I think as you were flying in, I was flying out. I think that's oh, kind of how that man. worked. Did you get a chance to go um, anywhere uh, anywhere fun? N- well, besides Wrigley Field. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I saw the tweets from that. Yeah. Besides, yeah, I, I, I mean, that made the trip for me, right? Yeah. It's like, that's all I needed right there. Wrigley Field on a night game? Sure, I'm there. Um, but uh, it, we, um, Aaron Lowe and I, we walked to lunch, and it was just kind of a holy-in-the-wall place where they have uh, heroes and Philly cheesesteaks. Oh, yeah. And I swear, that was one of the best Philly cheesesteaks I've ever had in my life. And I'm sitting here in Chicago. I'm like, what, what, what the heck, man? <laughs> it's like, it's just, you wouldn't even know. And it was like, boom. And I, and I was, I'm like, I shouldn't be eating all of this, but I will. Oh, if, if for anybody out in the audience who tra- does any traveling at all, eater.com, eater.com, there's, they have a version for every major city. So Chicago, Austin, Denver, you name it. And, uh, they, on all of them, they list their top 38 restaurants right now. And it's, it's amazing stuff. It's all kept up to the minute. Now, lots of news about local chefs. The places are reasonable. They're not too, you know, not crazy expensive uh, and really good food. There's so many good food options out there. Yeah, that's that's, that's kind of unlike Miami, where if you walk into a good restaurant, you're going to be uh-huh. paid for it. Oh, yes. I mean, that's, you're, you're, I mean, you're yeah. really going to pay for it. Yeah. Even if you walk into a bad restaurant, you're going to yeah. pay for it. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's, right. Yeah. that's true, too. You're like, wow, this looks, this place looks great, and the food is just terrible. Yes, and yet you're you're stuck with a two hundred fifty dollar bill. It's like, how how did I get to this point in my life? Yes, right? oh, and I have so many good memories from Miami Beach and all the food down there. It was I would the, like the, the uh, guacamole wontons at Cafe Next are like calling my name right now. <laughs> good stuff. <laughs> I think that may be the hardest part of doing podcasting yeah. is trying to figure out how to pronounce people's names. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We 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 have just audio, just us repeating names. <laughs> so later, Richie Trump. Yes, <laughs> yes. But, but I think that's well, let me tell you, Ozar, you're, you're a loser. <laughs> you're a loser, Ozar. You're fired. Yes. <laughs> My hair says you're a loser. So you're, you know, China, China does better than you. China's our winners. We're going to, but you, we're going to build a wall between us and Bermuda. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And we're going to make the Russians pay for it because they have nothing to do with it. Oh my gosh. Yes. That's, it's like reality TV there. I mean, it really is a lot (laughs) like reality TV. It's, I haven't been interested in politics for years. Suddenly I'm very interested in politics.